Okay. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. I am recording live at home this morning due to COVID-19, which is yucky, and social distancing, which is also terrible. Today, I'm joined by Dima Jani, the CEO at Alami. Dima, how are you doing this morning? I'm very good, Michael. Thanks for having me here. Thank you very so, much yeah, for coming on doing from this. The house as well. You are right. <laughs> yeah. Can you give the listeners a bit of your background for context? Sure, no problem. So I'm Indonesian. Um, spent uh, my childhood here in Indonesia until uh, high school, and I went to Singapore to study oh. uh, RMIT University. Okay. Uh, I. I took entrepreneur as my uh, major because I know one day I would like to start my own business. But back then, I didn't know what, what I want to do uh, in terms of the industry. So um, I, I went for an exchange program, actually, to the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Swear the Tar Heels so got exposed to you know, <laughs> a couple of basketball fans over there. Um, yeah, so, uh, but unfortunately, I, I graduated from my bachelor degree in 2008, oh, uh, right after Lehman Brothers <laughs> collapse. So it's pretty difficult to, to even find an internship there in the US. So Impossible. I came back to Singapore. Uh, I was accepted actually in, in this consulting company called Derivatives Consulting Group. So as you might know, when I'm back to Singapore, the company is gone. And oh no! I, I came back to Jakarta. I started to work at Citigroup uh, at the corporate investment banking division in Jakarta. Got it. And then it goes on for about seven years with with a, a bit of stint in in Hong Kong. Um, and then in 2015, I moved to Societe Generale uh, to become the rep uh, for Indonesia. So mostly on project finance and and euro bond. And uh, after that, I. I um, Decided to took on the pursue a further degree, so I took the executive MBA program of INSEAD uh, back in 2017 yeah, in Singapore. Uh, this is where I uh, started to um, think more about the the entrepreneurship idea that I had uh, about eight years ago, and uh, I came up with with uh, something that is uh, personal to me and passionate. So. I, I created uh, Alambi and I quit Softgen and and just uh, yeah uh, on on this now full time. Yeah, so you and I have a little bit of a similar background. We were talking offline. I also worked at Citigroup, but I worked in kind of global finance like you did for over twenty years. You were smarter than right. I was, which means you got out of it earlier than I did. So you still. <laughs> have your soul intact. I'm not sure I still have mine intact. Anyway, look, there's a lot of, there's a lot well, of, well, my soul has been influenced uh, a little bit by city culture. And I'm sorry. Born and bred there. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> but you know, it is very, it's very um, unique here, especially in Indonesia. So I think all of the city alumni here, they, they still keep in touch with each other. So That's it's awesome. really a strong culture here in Indonesia. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I was in a gigantic office in Tokyo and obviously <laughs> interacted with the offices in Hong Kong and globally. So, although to be fair, I do keep in touch with some of my friends from there. That, that's actually a really good point. Look, yeah, the, look, there's a lot of ground to cover. And I want to talk about the funding that Alami did last year. And again, it includes some of the best names in Asia, right? Including, but not limited to, Golden Gate and RHL Ventures. Sure. Can you talk about a little bit about how this funding was different from most other sort of straight equity venture rounds? Sure. Yeah. 
late last year, we were invested in a, in a seed round led by Golden Gate Ventures and some of the other VCs coming in as well, including Original Ventures from Malaysia and Agati Ventures from uh, Indonesia. Right. And one of the private investor, which is my uh, boss's boss at, at City, uh, awesome. we talked offline earlier. So I think what made this fundraising a little bit different than, than straight up equity from VC is that we incorporate a little bit of a Sharia structure here, which is called Mucharaka, or uh, it's a profit sharing scheme. So given that we are a Sharia fintech platform, so we would like to be Sharia compliant uh, from the upstream to the downstream, so-called. So we're trying to even raise our equity in a Sharia compliant way. Right. So essentially, uh, there's not much of a difference, uh, but I would think the additional is on the agreement itself, uh, the uh, extra clauses, as well as um, a statement of the, the profit sharing percentage, which is obviously tied into the to the ownership uh, and also the uh, justification why there would be preference shares, for example. Mm-hmm. Because this is something that is not straightforward in, in Sharia world because profit sharing is supposed to share the the, the upside as well as the, as the risk equally. But we need to justify where they, they're, there's this uh, preference share concept. So I, I think that is uh, what's a little bit different than the common uh, straight up equity. So the obvious question would be, if you raise more money, and most people do after seed rounds, right? Maybe you'll raise a Series A, and maybe you'll keep raising money, maybe not. But if you yeah. do, will the same sort of rules apply? In other words, do you presume that you'll get other investors that will also get a profit share? And what does that mean for dilution as well? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we we will incorporate a struct- such structure also going forward. And I think in terms of the dilution, it, it's really the, the equity investment. So there is no different impact when it comes to dilution okay. for the existing shareholders because everything is equity-based anyway. Yeah. Understood. So let's dig a bit more into Alami. What exactly does Alami do? Sure. So I think uh, the idea comes from the background of the Indonesian market first, then we can touch upon the, the global situ- uh, condition. Later, yeah. So in Indonesia itself, yeah, uh, it's um, the majority, uh, like about 80% of the population is Muslim, but mm-hmm. then the, the Islamic finance penetration or market share, it's only about 6% right now right. Uh, when we look at the banking system. So I think there's a, but over the last five years, there, there's a growing demand from the people actually that's asking for an easier, uh, user-friendly and and competitive products in terms of Sharia. But we seeing that the the banking, the Sharia banking industry, were a little bit slow to catch up given the legacy issues. So I think there's a very big opportunity. It's also a growing gap between the supply and the demand. And I think technology company can really capitalize on on this uh, on the shifting trend over the last five years. And we foresee it's going to be going on for the next. Uh, I don't know, five, ten years or down the road. So I think in Alami itself, uh, our business model uh, right now is P2P. Uh, why P2P? Because uh, it's one of the few uh, fintech verticals that's already regulated here in Indonesia, uh, aside from payment. So in a way that uh, people, users, and investors are more 
in a way secure to to deal with with this kind of uh, business model. So, but uh, going forward, uh, we would like to serve all of the Islamic finance products in our platform. So this is where where we want to be, like kind of a supermarket for Islamic finance. Got it. So this this is where the the, the city kind of DNA stuck with me. We want to be everything for everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So do without saying anything bad about the existing banks, right? But you said some yeah. of the legacy reasons for these big banks. Do they have these Sharia style funding businesses? And even if they do, how do you envision technology changing with this wave you said that started in the last five years of actually consumers saying, or even businesses saying, we want more of this, right? So how come they haven't done it so far? What's the legacy that's in the way? And how does tech make it easier for you to do this? Right. So I think from for the Islamic banking industry in Indonesia, particularly, there were started back in 1991 with the establishment of the first and only Sharia bank in Indonesia called Bamwa Malat. Okay. And after that, gradually, all of the big banks, all of the banks in Indonesia started to either come up with a subsidiary of an Islamic bank or, or a business unit, so Islamic business unit. So everybody kind of have their own Islamic window, so-called, uh, but still it's... Um, it's a subsidiary. It's it's a it's a business unit. So I think the focus is not so much there because uh, banking industry here, without doing anything, can easily grow like maybe ten or more percent every year. Given the financial penetration is still very low. Right. So I think in terms of the focus, they would like to, you know, uh, move the needles or or invest where where it does matter for for their bottom line. So. While the, the 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 growing demand is it's actually over the last five years getting stronger, so we're looking at, when when we, when we I talk about legacy issue, I'm speaking about the technology uh, and infrastructure that they have. Even the the parent bank uh, are still doing transformation with this to to kind of uh, be more competitive in serving the, the new millennials market. Uh, let alone the, the subsidiary, the, the Islamic window. So that's one. So they would be like second for manpower. Obviously, they, they want to move the needle. So they need to invest more on, on the parent bank. So they got the top kind of manpower resources. Right. So all of these things, uh, including branch, but I think going forward, branch will not make much of a difference anyways. So yeah, these are the, the kind of pain points that, that the Islamic banking industry has where the consumers is the same right so these consumers most of them are like this what we call it like swing market so they go to the banking service where they can offer the most competitive rate but if the islamic products is as competitive as the conventional then they they wouldn't mind to go to, to the islamic so the swing markets is the same as consumers the same so if the banks are transforming themselves to be able to serve these customers better and leave the so-called subsidiaries islamic window so this is where we seeing the the, the legacy issues couldn't catch up with with the consumer demands this is where technology will come into play got it so for alami the way we trying to tackle these pain points is definitely to come up with a very strong uh, niche product such as here to peer first so that the individual who would like to invest in an Islamic or Sharia compliance way would be able to easily through to our platform. 
And those businesses, SMEs, that would like to borrow and, and share a compliant way can also borrow from our platform uh, easily uh, and more competitively uh, uh, in, in the sphere of, uh, of the P2P industry. And how does, uh, how does the return get calculated? I mean, all I know is interest, right, because I'm ignorant sure. about the way this works. But there's got to be a way to calculate a return. How does that happen? Correct. Okay, first of all, uh, a little bit of a disclaimer. I, I'm not a, 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 a Islamic finance expert <laughs> because okay. Uh, okay. My, my education is more on the kind of like Western financial market as we know it, but I'm trying. So, uh, of course, like I have this super, uh, Sharia supervisor who we can touch upon later. Go ahead. So, essentially, in, in Sharia, there are kind of three broad transactions uh, that, that I can categorize. One okay. is profit sharing. So profit sharing is what we call in the Arabic terms, musharaka or mudaroba, is the uh, essentially an equity investment. So the returns that you get tied to the bottom line of the business that, that you invest, uh, but some of the banks put uh, on the top line. So I guess these are the, the different uh, interpretation on, on how uh, the banks uh, do their business. Okay. So, and then the, the the most popular one is actually not the profit sharing scheme, but the buy and sell scheme. Uh, so it's called Murabaha, typically. So basically, the bank or the financial institutions would, uh, for example, for a mortgage, right? So the bank would kind of buy the house first, for example, for $100 and then sell it to their customers at $120. So they have kind of $20 profit margin where the customers can pay these 120 in installments for maybe 10, 15 years, 20 years. So this is the the, the most popular structure, uh, which is the Murabaha uh, or, or buy and sell. And the other structure would be the lease structure, ijara or a fee structure, something like that. So there are other structures, but I think these uh, three are the, the main ones. So for us, for Alami, it's a little bit complex because our product is only invoice financing for now. Right. So we are using what the typical banks are using to do the invoice financing, which is we call Wakala Bil Udra, which uh, Wakala means the representation or POA-based structure with a fee. Udra is a fee. So our fee, uh, which goes back to the lenders, will be equivalent to those interest rates out there. So for example, I, I will tell the structure uh, very slowly so that it's clear. Go ahead. So for example, an SME got a project from Google, right. and Google will pay them, pay them three months down the road. But then they need a working capital to yep. take a project from Apple. So they would go to us, to Alami, and they will say, hey, I got an invoice from Google. Now I need $100,000. And then we will assess the, the that invoice and, the, and their company's financials and data. And once we approve it, we will find the lenders. It's crowdfunding, which means that we get both institutions and also retail investors to come to put money uh, through us to, to this company. So the structure would be the company has an invoice to Google and uh, they would ask the lenders to represent them to claim to Google uh, because it's invoice financing, and also to administer the, the whole process so that the lenders is entitled to a fee. So this fee would, would equal to the interest rate out there. 
So meaning that it's a service, okay? So there's no loan involved here. Yeah. And the loan itself would be caught. Caught is a 0% interest loan. So it's only like principal. Right. So, so the loan itself is different. So when it's due, then in the next three months, Google will pay the company and the company will repay the, the loan, which is 100% of the principal only. And then on top of that, we'll pay the fee, the fee to manage the process and also to help to claim to Google. So this fee, which is maybe about 15% uh, in equivalent, would be the equivalent amount uh, for them to check to the market. So then you would ask me or people would ask that. So what is the difference that the, the typical interest financing in the conventional world uh, in economic sense, right? So this is most often the, the question that I got from the market. Sure. So economically, I would say there is not much of a difference, to be honest. So why go all the way like this? is because for me, the, the main economic difference is the concept of the compounding interest. So for this, because the lenders get a, a fixed fee for that. So if there is any late payment or anything, this fee will, will stay. So it won't increase. But I think for the conventional, there will be a compounding interest whereby if the, if the borrower doesn't pay that it goes up right right so i think economically speaking there would be the only difference and i think it tied also to the concept of, of islamic finance which is fairness so what we see is that the borrowers will not get squeezed if they couldn't pay given that their character is good right and that's the presumption right is that inside of a framework where the approval has already been done inside of the Sharia law and the Sharia finance, the idea is that the people that are borrowing are operating in good faith. And if they're operating in good faith, that they shouldn't get charged late charges. In other words, there's a, there's a, what's the right word, a sharing of risk component to this as well, right? That, that is correct. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that feels a bit fairer. Do, do you want to define these terms that we talked about offline? The, I'm going to mispronounce them, right? Reba, Mysir, and Garar, yeah. did I pronounce that properly? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so um, Reba's just that, interest, cool. right? Mm-hmm. Reba is, yeah, basically interest. It's actually the, the literal meaning of it is an excessive. Reba means excess. Yeah, got it. A natural, a natural excess. So it's kind of a, a, I mean, a borrowed, yeah, yeah. It, a borrowed from an, an, an American house, which is really famous. It's called like, I had lunch with him a couple of months ago. He came to Jakarta and then he said it's it's a natural excess. It's like a tumor kind of thing. So it, it's not kind of organic. It grows exponentially, right. uh, which is unnatural. So meaning that, yeah. So basically, Riba, when we talk about back then, you know, during the, the, the early uh, after death, uh, after Jesus and all of these time, medieval times, uh, it's basically those people who, who needs to eat, they, they cannot afford anything, they're poor, and they, they're asking loan. And so there's these people, like the loan shark, right, that they get give us loan and with a very, very high interest rate, then they sure wouldn't be able to pay and they just confiscate their Assets. their house, their daughters, and all these things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So these are like the riba that was mentioned back then, but obviously now it's different. It's more like a, like, like a system rather than the, these kind of loan sharks. So even the scholars will also categorize RIBA differently today. 
some scholars would be a little bit more rigid in, in the interpretation, and some of the scholars will be a little bit more flexible. So we have these different various scholars, but I think the concept, like generally as we know it now, is the is the interest rate basically. Got it. And my seer, it, it's it's actually gambling. So it's basically oh. gamble, yeah, spe- speculation, speculation, gambling. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and Gorar, it's um, it's um, uncertainty. So for example, back then, want to buy a cow which is still in the, in the womb so like like maybe kind of future or forward transaction something like that which is uncertain or or selling something that is not yours probably in today's world is more similar to like short selling short selling uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it's it's the the uncertainty okay let's go back to business a little bit as well is there a social impact to this? In other words, you're dealing now, at least with your first product or your product, first product suite with SMEs, but is there a social mm-hmm. impact to this as well? And, and I guess the follow-on to that is, is there a consumer side of this business that can scale up? Okay, I think it's very close to to, uh, to social. So for, uh, first of all, let me touch upon from, from Alami's business perspective, and I'm going to widen it from the Islamic finance concept. Go ahead. So from Alami itself, uh, we're trying to do uh, impact at, at the epicenter of our business model. So what we're trying to do is that we're trying to come up with an impact-centered business model where the lenders, they can actually from their profit to donate a part of their profit into those in the bottom of the pyramid. Nice. So rather than only get it a virtuous cycle between the, the small businesses that is going up and also on the other side is the lenders money keep coming up. We're also trying to touch upon the bottom of the pyramid, which is often get left behind so that money get goes around. So I think this is also interesting from, from the lenders perspective because not only they get their returns on their money, but they also uh, feel good because they, they can also help other people who's less fortunate than them through this platform. So this is what we're trying to, to to implement going forward. In terms of the Islamic finance itself, I would like to see Islamic finance not purely commercial, but there are also social finance in it. So what we call, like, for example, like zakat, or it, it, it's similar, but not really similar to tax. Back then, it's more similar, but now it's different. And there's a sadaqa, like donation, and wakaf. Wakaf is actually also interesting, which is kind of like donation, but for productive assets. So the, the capital is not spent, but the upside is spent for social costs. So these are the things that is a, it's a huge potential for, for the Islamic finance industry and obviously for Alami. Because what we're seeing is there's also a couple of startups that doing donation crowdfunding. And they become very successful as well. And their monetization is more often, it's more lucrative than, than P2P, for example, <laughs> so, which is interesting because they don't have the credit risk, but then they can get more uh, market fee. So, yeah, obviously, this is something uh, along the line across the spectrum of what Alami wants to be. So one of the things I think you've spoken about before, and I just want to cover it a bit is, and you said this earlier, there's only really about 6% penetration 
for this type of finance, this type of business in, in a market that's huge, right? I mean, 200 yeah. and pick a number, 70, 80 million people. And you exactly. said, what, 80% of the population are Muslims, I think you said, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you educate the market about the benefits about this? What do you do and what should you be doing to educate people? Because that's one of the big disconnects, right, is educating the market about the fact that it's available, but also educating the fact that it's the same maybe level or amount of return as you would get otherwise, but just in a way that's Sharia compliant. How do you educate the market? Sure. Right. So I think we were trying to be radical in a good way on, on educating the market. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at some of the neobanks communication message, for example, which they're really trying to break away from how banking educate their customers, right? right? So this is something that we're trying to implement as well. So the way that Sharia banks is to educate their customers is really from, from the Sharia angle only. I think that that's what, I, what we feel that that's kind of the strong point, which actually is like the, the, the market couldn't really get what, what's in it for them, right? Right. So what we're trying to educate to the customers is we, we're trying to use the language that they can understand. So rather than using the Arabic terms, we're just using the, the economic terms, for example. That is one. And second, it's less so on the commercial, but also on, on kind of the movement, like you know, like uh, you're lending money to this SME, not only because you want such returns, but also you're helping the small businesses to grow and also like helping the bottom of the pyramid. So they, they feel more purpose in doing business with us uh, compared to only getting returns. Obviously, the returns would be the key. So we really need to be very professional in terms of managing our uh, NPL as well as the, uh, the credit assessment of our platform. Got it. So that's one. And second is the channel. Channel would be going through different communities. There are so many communities, what we call here hijra communities, mm-hmm. which is actually they're trying to become learning to become a better Muslim and all these things. A lot of these people are already asking if there is any solution for the Islamic finance problem that they have, because what they're trying to do now is they become better Muslim. So those women, they, they're starting to kind of wear hijab, for example, they're trying to look at restaurants which uh, uh, have the halal certificate, yeah. and slowly they, they're coming to the financial part of it and trying to move their accounts from conventional banks to Sharia banks and all of these things. Uh, so these are what we call the early adopters, and I think when we have a significant enough early adopters, then we can branch out to, to, to the swing market. So there's a whole movement in the fintech space, which you've just mentioned about like these challenger banks, right? Or neobanks, call them whatever you'd like. Is there an opportunity for you, if you don't want to get a banking license or, or if you don't want to do that on your own, to partner with some of these neobanks or challenger banks from just from the start, right? So that they already have a Sharia component built in, or do you want to keep Mm -hmm. this peer to peer from the beginning or, or until the end? I mean, in other words, what's the strategy there? Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, we're trying to be the supermarket of Islamic finance. So inevitably, I think we're going towards that direction. So either by partnership or we becoming one or uh, we acquire the small bank, uh, I think uh, that's uh, depending. Sorry? Do it. Acquire a bank. (laughs) 
because in Indonesia itself, it's very tricky, right? So there is no specific license for this digital bank, unlike Singapore, yeah, not yet, right? Hong Kong, yeah, or even Malaysia. There's discussion on this, but in Indonesia, it's still not there. They might be going forward, but I would think there are so many limitations. That's why a lot of the, the big tech company is actually acquiring banks. So that's why I came up with these things. Yeah. So there's so many smaller banks that need to be, they're, they're trying to sell as well. So I think it's a moving pieces on how to best get there. But obviously we were trying to, to, to go there as well. Awesome. So do you envision this business as an Indonesian only business? You know, we again, we talked about this offline, but there are about 1.8 billion Muslims in the world. It's almost 20% of the world's population. Is there an opportunity to expand outside of country and outside of region as well? Yeah, for sure. I, I think uh, being Islamic, meaning that uh, even though it's growing, still it's a niche market. So I think it's kind of easier for us to do regional or even global expansion compared mm. to kind of the mainstream ones because we have kind of stronger identity in this yeah. niche market. Yeah. So I think it makes sense yeah, to, to, to go regional or global. So actually my, my wife is French and we we're talking about the, the, the awesome. French community and really like they, they're really looking for this kind of solution because there are so many Muslims now in France, which is also underbanked. And I heard uh, some of the Turk Bank and in Germany, they, they come up with the, the, the neo bank there for the Islamic and even in the UK. So I think that there's obviously more market and talking about Southeast Asia itself, we have Malaysia and a little bit in Philippines. Thailand so, uh, as well, right? Thailand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I need to consult with you more. Going <laughs> Whatever, you that, <laughs> Whatever you need. Whatever you need. So, yeah, obviously, uh, I think regional global expansion is key. But obviously, Indonesia is is a very big market for us. It is. We would like to be the market leader here first before we, we do some expansion. Okay. Look, the last thing I want to ask you before I let you go, we've covered a ton of ground already, is what does the name mean? I just, I always feel like when the name of a company <laughs> is, some, is a word that I don't understand, that it has some kind of embedded meaning. So does it or am I just making this up myself? Yeah, so the story is like this. So we're thinking about the business idea, and I'm I'm an ambitious person. So <laughs> it's like I want to have a name for the startup, but then I don't want to have it a very simple one, like right. you know, like many many obviously fintech here. So I want to have a meaning. So yeah, I just kind of randomly get like the the first three letters from the second chapter in Quran which is actually no one knows what's the meaning of it. And I feel like, okay, this is very philosophical. Very philosophical. So the, yeah, the letter is Alif Lamim. So if we abbreviate these things, it becomes Alami. So this, uh, the, the meaning of these three letters in Quran, nobody knows. Like uh, what we believe is only only Allah knows this meaning. So I think that, wow, that that's a good idea. Okay, let us just start with this. But then later, some people told me that yeah, this is very interesting because Alami itself in Bahasa Indonesia means natural. Oh, really? So when we talk, yeah. <laughs> so when we talk about, if you, if you Google Alami before, now yeah, hopefully there's us, but before if you Googled, then you got to see this herbal and all of this. I did. That, I did. That's why I asked you because it didn't make any sense <laughs> to me. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah. So it's natural. So talking about the 
river, which means it's unnatural access. So Aleph is natural, so it's the opposite. So, okay, that, that's kind of interesting angle. Well done. So, yeah. Well done. Look, Dima, I really want to thank you for doing this. This was awesome. The CEO at Alami, awesome conversation. Thank you again so much for doing Thanks, this. Thanks, Michael, for having me. It is uh, very privileged for me to, to, to be invited in this podcast.